Welcome to On the Pandemic. This episode is hosted by Mary O'Dowd, Executive Director of Health Systems and Population Health Integration for Rutgers University and former Commissioner of Health for the State of New Jersey. Joining the discussion today are Dr. Lawrence Kleinman, Chief Division of Population Health Quality and Implementation Science, Department of Pediatrics, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and Dr. Stephen Barnett, Senior Co-Director of the National Institute of Early Education Research. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. This is Mary O'Dowd from Rutgers University, and today we are talking about kids, school, and COVID. To explore these topics, I am joined by two of my Rutgers colleagues, Larry Kleinman, a pediatrician and population health researcher, and Steve Barnett, an education researcher and founder of the National Institute for Early Education Research. Both have been leading research on the impact of COVID on kids. To set the stage, there are three general ways that kids and their physical and emotional development have been affected by COVID. First, when they have caught the COVID virus themselves. Second, when someone in their lives, either a parent, teacher, or grandparent has gotten COVID and has either been sick, hospitalized, or even died. Um, and third, they have been impacted as members of the broader community and all the social effects not being able to go to school, not being able to visit or socialize with friends and family. Of course, there has been variation in the impact of these issues for different communities, and some children have also been dealing with the issues of food insecurity, a job loss for a parent, or the overall stress for families with parents working from home. Larry, let's start with the effect of the actual virus in kids when they get it. I've heard you say that it's a myth that kids don't really get sick from COVID. As a pediatrician who is studying this, what can you tell us about kids who catch the virus? Thank you, Mary. I would say that indeed the original myth of COVID was that children are spared or one of the original myths. What we know is that a small but predictable fraction of children will get very sick with the illness. Most of those children will have, uh, have other conditions, which may be as, uh, uh, as diverse as obesity or other chronic illnesses, um, but not all of them. About one in 20 who gets uh, very sick will not have uh, another uh, illness. So we have to be aware that if many children get the infection, some will get very sick. And then there is also, uh, there are longer term effects that I know you wanna talk about that as well. Right, one of those longer term effects on kids is what they're calling the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids. MIS-C, I think is the acronym. Um, I you know, was looking at the data and here in New Jersey, there have been 115 kids hospitalized for this. And across the country, over 3000 pediatric cases have been reported with 36 deaths. What is this? Well, Mary, Miss C is the poster child for a group of syndromes that we're still learning about called post-acute sequelae of COVID, PASC. And Miss C presents typically with fever, with inflammatory symptoms that may be from the respiratory tract, with the uh, cardiac functioning, with the GI tract, the stomach, intestines, um, skin, rashes, 
all of these. It's a broad range of symptoms that present typically about four weeks after the initial infection. And uh, many children who get this get very, very sick. They often need life support. Um, some of them uh, are as sick as you're likely to see a child. But the fortunate news is that many recover, most recover, almost all recover. But as you noted, there are a few who don't. And, and of course, that's a terrible loss. Let me ask you this, Larry. Yeah. When you know you talk about it as it was an early myth that kids were not impacted by the virus. And you know, as you've talked about it today, there are children who not only get sick, but some that get very sick. Um, but generally speaking, when you look at the numbers, they are smaller for the pediatric population, and particularly the very young kids, than they are for many other age groups. Is that a fair statement? How would you categorize this? Mary, I would say that is a fair statement, that children are, are when, once infected, children are less likely than adults to get very sick. That being said, when the numbers are in the millions who get sick, the numbers of children who get very sick is meaningful. And that's one of the challenges, that the proportions are low, but the numbers are impactful. We also don't know very well the long-term impacts of this. If you think about children as on a course of growth and development over a life course, we don't know the extent to which this impacts that life course. We do know, for example, in adults, that even asymptomatic adults may have pneumonia if you get an X-ray on them. We don't have this data on children. We don't understand the neurocognitive effects of this and the neurodevelopmental effects in the short or the long term. So I think that there is a lot of work to be done before we can feel comfortable that that those numbers are more than the tip of the iceberg. Thanks, Larry, that's really helpful. Um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that schools have been closed um, significantly over the course of the more than a year now, and that impact on children. Steve, this school year has been nuts. Um, you know, as a mom of three boys, two of which who have been in school, this has been really a strange and challenging year for both myself as a parent, but also for them as kids going through it. Um, some kids have been in school full-time in person this, this current school year. Um, other kids have not been in school at all. And other children like mine have been in a hybrid model with almost every week feeling like a different schedule. What has been the impact on kids? I think that's a, a great way of, of phrasing the question, Mary, because it, it, it brings out the variability. So there isn't one answer, right? Some kids uh, have hardly been affected at all um, because their schools didn't close. Um, their, their parents may have still been working. Um, other kids uh, whose uh, schools closed got good supports for hybrid. Um, their parents were good at supporting their education. Uh, their families were doing all right. And so probably minimal impacts on those. Uh, and all too predictably, these differences correlate with socioeconomic differences. So the children who were the most disadvantaged to begin with, who needed the public supports from public education the most, are the ones who've been most uh, disadvantaged uh, by the pandemic. 
they're the ones who are who are most likely in preschool or kindergarten not to just have been held out, not to get anything remote or in person, whose parents had uh, great difficulty in providing them uh, remote services, though I will say across the board for younger children, and, and the younger children are, uh, the more difficult it is educating them virtually or remotely, right? Um, the parents of young children uh, kind of across the board were very unsatisfied. Uh, with remote education and the difficulties they had uh, navigating and supporting that. Um, yeah. Then in addition, you have children missing out on the social opportunities, on sports opportunities, uh, you know, physical activity and even meals. Uh, while many, many programs provided meals to kids who weren't physically in school um, and uh, some even stepped up to do that, about a quarter of children in poverty uh, ceased getting the food supports that they used to get when they were in school. And uh, all of that negatively impacts physical, social, emotional, cognitive development. You know, what you're saying really rings true from my experience. I have a fourth grader who, except for the fact that he started to skip his virtual classes that he didn't like, generally was able to get a lot of the academic material in the virtual environment. But I had a kindergartner who, it was just a brutal battle to get him to engage on the virtual platform from day to day. And so I think the age of the kid really, really does um, make a difference. For those kids that you were talking about that were significantly disadvantaged, um, do you think there's a lost year for kids in terms of learning and education? It's not an entirely lost year, but it's a year of setback, right? If you think about summer learning loss, you know, most of the weight gain that we worry about in the obesity problem with kids is actually summer weight gain. Uh, people don't realize that. Uh, now we've had for many children, three extra summers. Um, that That's damaging. Um, the Wharton School uh, economists estimate up as much as a 10% decrease in lifetime earnings. We know that lifetime earnings are associated with longevity. So, so that's an increase in, in uh, mortality or decrease in lifespan. It's probably also an increase in morbidity uh, long-term, uh, both because of the associations with cognitive, social, emotional development, but also just the physical impacts of, of increased, um, a decrease in physical activity and increase in, in obesity. I, I can tell you that the days that my son is on all virtual school are much more sedentary days. We have a Fitbit now in our house because of this, just to try to stay on top of it. And so we're tracking it and it's, it's there. The data is there. It's really striking. Yes. Um, and parents have very different access, parents and children, to outdoor spaces uh, where their children can get exercise. Um, so, so, you know, again, it, it's there's a lot of disparity in what you can do to make up when these opportunities are lost. What are some of the things that parents and teachers should be thinking about in terms of how to deal with it? 
they should be thinking about the kinds of things they normally do and, and how to get back on track doing those. So, for example, we've seen a big decline in parents reading to their children at home. Um, is that because everybody's more stressed out because they're doing virtual learning? And it's like, no more, mommy <laughs> and daddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Enough learning already. Those are words we don't want to hear. And unfortunately, I think too many parents are hearing that. Um, so figuring out how do we work these into activities um, that are normal, you know, reading, playing games, um, inside and outdoor, um, so that they don't seem like they're impositions, um, but rather fun opportunities, uh, getting back in, into uh, regular routines to the extent possible. And, and the same for teachers. The best thing teachers can do is to be the best teachers they can be in the ways they always were. Uh, and you know, if you have to figure out how to do that virtually, um, then that's what you do. But in, in addition to that, we, we need to open schools and figure out how to do that safely. I should say, we, I don't think we need to figure that out. I think we need to commit to doing what we already know works. Yeah, a lot, a lot of information has come out on that. You know, you talked a little bit about the family dynamic and the stress and the relationship between parents and kids. Um, and there are new levels of stress because of the different roles parents are taking on and the impact that the pandemic is having on them as an adult and as a parent. When schools are closed in particular, this is challenging. And the fact that they needed to support their kids with virtual learning at home was a new job for many of them, in addition to dealing with their own job, um, which sometimes they had to do from home in close quarters with their, their uh, family members. And this has been an adjustment for, and some people have adjusted better than others. What are you seeing in terms of the impact of this kind of stress on kids and how does that impact their ability to learn generally? Well, I, I think there are two different um, components of this. We've done now surveys of a thousand families of uh, children ages three to five uh, who are not yet in kindergarten. So these are preschoolers. Uh, we don't know about older kids, uh, but we don't see any within the preschoolers, we don't see an age trend. Uh, their levels of stress are about twice what's normal. Uh, their parents' concerns about their ability to get along with peers either with pro-social activities or in terms of antisocial behavior are twice as high as normal. Um, so this stress has definitely gotten transmitted to kids. Um, we know that that happens. Um, and the sooner we can get the stress off the parents, uh, the sooner we can get the stress off the kids. Um, but the, these are very high levels. Um, you know, 20-25% of kids presenting with problems when, when we would have expected 10%. Um, so that, that by itself is a problem for social-emotional development. It spills over into cognitive and academic, but the, the main problem with cognitive and academic is the lack of opportunities because 
parents are reading less at home, children are engaging in fewer activities with their peers and teachers. Steve, I've heard you say that, you know, if an adult is angry or stressed out, they're not listening and learning. And it's the same for kids. Is that as simple as it is really? That, that's as simple as it is. If a child's crying at the screen, <laughs> right, or frustrated that I can't make this work, uh, they're not learning. Uh, and they are acquiring habits and dispositions we don't want them to have. Right. right. They're 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 developing a, a view that this is aversive and something they don't want to engage in. So it's it's you know the feeling and and thinking go together, uh, and uh, we have to address both of them. Mm, thank you, Larry. You know Steve was talking a lot about some of the physical health impacts this is all having with kids as well, and. There have been reports that kids are missing out on routine care, not getting regular vaccines, um, you know, according to the vaccine schedule, not getting things done in their doctor's office that they normally would, like lead screenings, which we know is, is really important, not only for physical, but also learning. Um, and also con concerns that Steve highlighted about childhood obesity. And, and I didn't realize it was the summer months that were the most problematic. Um, how is this situation impacting the broader health risks for kids? Uh, I think it's a it's like so much of COVID, um, not quite as simple as, uh, uh, as as what I agree with is a simple thing that if kids are stressed they don't learn. Here, there is the reality of kids getting less health services, some of which they ought to be getting. Um, there. At the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know how to do it safely. So the message was stay at home. But since then, we have figured out how to handle healthcare safely. Uh, at the same time, um, anything that congregates is a risk benefit analysis, anything that brings people together. So if, you, uh, if your child needs vaccinations, they should be coming in. If your child needs screenings or assessments, they should be coming in. If your child has a cold or has a cough, maybe you should be doing a telehealth visit initially and then let the physician help you, the clinician help you decide uh, if there's a visit that's there. We've seen over the course of the winter a dramatic reduction in the respiratory viruses that kids generally get. So they seem to actually have had a healthier year in terms of other infectious diseases. Although I'm getting reports now from my colleagues in New York City that uh, some of those winter viruses are coming with abandon now in the spring. So whether we're gonna see that in New Jersey or not, I don't know. I also think I, I wanna to pick up on something that Stephen, you were talking about a little earlier in terms of disparities, because I think that uh, COVID disparately affects Latino and black children. Um, school districts uh, with uh, higher minority populations may have less money to, uh, to bring in all the safety protocols that we know work in schools. So I think this whammy just keeps on hitting and the disadvantage uh, piles up. So I do think it's gonna be important for us and also by the way, access to, to healthcare. Uh, can be worse in those settings. So I, I think we have to think about as we, we think about coming out, um, how we're going to 
mitigate those disparities to the greatest extent possible because uh, it, it has uh, it's compounded some of the tragedies of this pandemic. I'm glad you raised that, Larry, because you know, as I'm looking at all of this and how much our schools have been through in this last year, I feel that there should be some kind of a statewide school recovery and resiliency plan. Um, and that comes, that language is very much emergency preparedness jargon. Um, but I think it speaks to what's required here. Um, Steve, some of your research speaks to how we can transform our educational systems to adapt to these new needs that we see for our kids and our teachers, um, given the pandemic. If we could write ourselves, the three of us, um, you know, a plan for New Jersey or for the country to help uh, a recovery plan to address both the immediate needs that we have um, and work towards those transformational um, things that you've talked about. What do you think should be included in, in this plan that would help our communities, our teachers and our schools better meet the needs of our kids and catch up from this learning loss? I, I think the first thing would be to engage the educational community in developing that plan uh, as a community, right? Um, they're, they're all working on this <laughs> on their own uh, and to some extent self-organizing. Right? The superintendents in New Jersey talk to each other, meet together. Their organizations help with that. Uh, but I would like to see some state leadership um, bringing them together. Um, and then planning for the summer. What can we do to create an on-ramp for the fall that uh, enables us to be successful in all the things we have to do, both preparing to educate kids and preparing to mitigate the risks of reopening schools? Uh, what can we do in the summer to make up for the, the learning lost opportunities for uh, whether those are academic, physical, social. Um, and there are lots of good summer program models uh, that we can engage with bringing schools together with nonprofit organizations like the WISE, for example, um, and many others. Uh, and then figuring out what are we gonna do in the fall uh, without making too many additional demands, right? I think we need to think about how do we support teachers to be the best they can be rather than asking them to reinvent themselves for fall. Uh, we are constantly asking schools to transform themselves. Uh, we have an abysmal track record of actually making that happen. Uh, and they often they just feel like they're in a merry-go-round or Groundhog Day. I'm not sure what the analogy is, uh, but, but none of them are good. And so how do we support teachers who are gonna be stressed themselves? Uh, how do we ensure that when they come back and they have kids who have twice the normal level of behavior problems, they have the supports to deal with that? Um, those are the kinds of things that I, that I would prioritize. And then I would add, what can we, but on top of that, not additional demands for the same people, but what can we do with after school programs and other kinds of supplemental tutoring programs, uh, diagnosing, identifying the kids who have um, problems, exactly what those problems are, focusing tutoring on that, giving them intensive, giving them intensive tutoring 
uh, either using expert teachers or even volunteers. There's some good volunteer tutoring programs. Um, we, we can make up a lot of the difference. And then thinking about this as a long-term problem. We, we don't have to do all of the catch up in one year. We can think about what do we do over the next three to four years to support this cohort of kids uh, who have had problems. All right, so we'll amend it to a five-year plan for all the things that take a little longer than we expect. And I like what you're talking about in terms of using the summer and after-school programs, because I think that's when you can really engage community-based organizations to support our schools as well. I, I have to say, I want to endorse the why here, because they have been one of the few organizations that came out early to provide outdoor activities, even through the winter, for kids that were able to um, participate. And, um, you know, it was a real... Uh, a real relief for me because, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to, to set, look for these opportunities and pay for these opportunities. But I think to some of your um, suggestions, this, this is going to cost some money. So I think there has to be some financial support for some of these programs that's different than just asking teachers to do more. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. And there's a lot of money. Um, we just have to make sure it gets allocated to the right things. Uh, and there will be a stampede to allocate the, the money to meet all sorts of agendas, short term and long term. And I think we need to make sure that the kids uh, get first in line and, and their needs are prioritized. And then the needs of the teachers and families that support them uh, to make sure they are, they're able to do that. That's good. A good um centering goal for whatever our plan is going to look like. Larry, let's let's talk a little bit about what you would see in this recovery plan. Um, how would you uh, look at this as something that might include things that would address the physical and mental health of kids? Well, I think it actually starts with where you and Steve were just talking about. It's support for kids, support for families. It's identifying kids who have uh, lost a part of the education and making sure they catch up and where you can grouping them together. So it's not an individual, but a joint and a social endeavor. I think it's recognizing that a part of the work of being a kid is schooling. A part of it is play and we need support for all of that. And then making sure that uh, as a corollary, there's access to the healthcare I think it would be worth doing some surveillance to see about neurocognitive development um, and health impacts long-term of COVID. I think the federal government will do some of that, but I think the state can do uh, some fruitfully as well. Uh, I think understanding that children uh, are holistic beings who live in a context of a family which exists within a community is really important. I think at the same time, we need to remember that in Middlesex County right now, COVID cases are far above their peak from last April. So we feel like we're on the downslide of this and hopefully from a, a, a temporal uh, in a temporal sense we are, but this is not yet in the rearview mirror. So we need to also maintain safety and continue to think about things as risk benefits. I, I like, 
I will say, I think that one of the things we know works is masks with social distancing, ventilation, and hand washing with the cleaning of high contact surfaces. Um, I'm not sure that's, that three feet social distancing, as the CDC has suggested, may be safe, is safe. What we know is it can be if everything else is done right. But uh, if we think about uh, the, the potential risks as trying to wend themselves through the various protections we put up, every time we lose a, uh, a barrier, we make it easier for, for failures to happen. And we are seeing that uh, illness is spreading in schools and um, we need to get vaccines for kids. That's another piece that will happen, I hope soon. But, but once those vaccines are available, we need to make sure that the state and others support the distribution of them for, uh, for children. They're currently available, the Pfizer vaccine to age 16. Um, and there's a new emergency use authorization uh, application that Pfizer has put in for down to 12. Uh, but we need to get the studies down lower for the, uh, the grade school kids and the preschool kids. And um, I, I would encourage your, uh, uh, you know, the, your listenership to take advantage of vaccination whenever possible. Larry, Steve, thank you so much for joining me here today um, for this very important conversation. I have a feeling we'll be back together um, in a few months to see how things are going. Thanks, look forward Mary. to talking to you anytime. Thank you, Mary. To learn more about the research that Steve and his team are doing on how COVID-19 is affecting education for kids, you can visit the National Institute for Early Education Research at nieer.org. You've been listening to On the Pandemic. We'll be back soon with new guests and new information from the top minds in health. To learn more about how Rutgers is making a difference during the COVID-19 pandemic, visit rutgers.edu slash united.